the Bookends Podcast with your hosts, Tim Root and Michael Dernberger. This week's guest, Brendan Pankey, joins the show to talk about Calvin and Hobbes. Ooh. Welcome, everyone. I feel like there was a follow-up to that. It was, good ti- it was just really good timing. Like you, you ended and the song ended at the same time. I, I like that like we followed it up by some really poor timing no of our dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody is quiet, though. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the Bookends Podcast, the show where we explore your pop culture obsessions from A and Z. I am your host, as always, Tim Root, alongside me, Michael Dernberger. Dernberger, Hello. did you have a Merry Christmas this year? Assalamu alaikum and Merry mm-hmm. Christmas. Mela Kaliki Waka. <laughs> I think that's that's the Hawaiian way to say Merry Christmas. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? That's that's what the song claims. I've never like looked into it. Do you know the the words? I know what they sound like. I'm sure I butchered it. It's been a long time since I've seen uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, so I can't remember. <laughs> uh, it was good Christmas. Woo! All the family. Yeah. All was it? You had a quality time. Yeah, it was fun. There was hardly any racism. Uh, <laughs> that's that's always a goal for <laughs> big family Christmases. Well, that voice you hear is the host of Madison Storytellers, a fantastic podcast uh, where you can hear people in the Madison area or or anywhere uh, that that tell true stories from their lives in front of a live crowd. It's a fantastic podcast. Uh, it is the one, the only Brendan Pankey. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for fitting me into the recording schedule. So uh, why don't we, at the, at the start of the show, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, more about Madison Storytellers, how sure. how that uh, has been going, how the podcast, uh, you know, just the whole yeah. kit and caboodle. Uh, yeah, Madison Storytellers is good. We're like, um, I think, yeah, we're a little over three years old now. Uh, it was all started, I didn't start it, um, some other grad students did. They, they were like hanging out. A bunch. Uh, th- a lot of times, um, grad schools, you'll y- when you show up, the first thing they'll do as like a class, you'll take a, a field trip, and so two of the people on the field trip started just trading stories, and and they had a really good time doing that. They were like, "Oh, it'd be great if we did this in Madison, and uh, for more people to do." And so it started out uh, in a co-op, um, a housing co-op, and they would just be in the in the living room, and I started going. And then they got invited to do an event at the public library, which was going to be bigger. And they invited me to host that event because uh, c- I uh, had some hosting chops from um, performing with an improv group. And then I invited myself to be part of the group. I was like, this is really fun, guys, coming up with themes. Could I do this all the time? Uh, I imagine very desperately. Uh, but also hopefully <laughs> like kind of sweetly and uh, yeah so they invited me and then they all quit and I was doing it by myself for a little while mm-hmm. um, and now I've got a new co-coordinator uh, that I work with Amanda she's great uh, she had come and told just some fantastic stories uh, and so I, I wanted to make her come tell stories more often <laughs> and uh, and so we've been organizing it um, the moth is actually gonna probably open a chapter in Madison. Oh, okay. So uh, I think that'll is be that an opportunity for you, or is that competition for you? How do you see that? I think it'll be an opportunity I, because I think um, people are gonna want to practice their stories. Sure. Uh, for the moth, 
and we're a much more relaxed atmosphere. Uh, the people who come in and tell stories uh, have been told many times that we've got like, a, and I believe it, we've got a great audience, uh, very welcoming, uh, and everybody gets up there to tell whatever kind of story they need to tell. Well, it's um, certainly, it's a great podcast. Uh, if mm-hmm. you're a podcast fan within the reach of my voice, check out, uh, you can find on iTunes, Madison Storytellers. If you happen to live in the Madison area, uh, definitely look them up. Are you guys got a Facebook page or anything where they yeah, can get dates and, and that kind of thing? Facebook, and we got a website. Our next event will be um, January 15th at Crescendo uh, Coffee House on Monroe Street. So well, there you go, everybody. Yeah. Check that show out. And uh, the theme song for that podcast, I believe, was, correct me if I'm wrong, composed by our very own producer-engineer Andy, at yeah, least partially. that's true. That's he is, true. He is here mining the ones and twos today. He's not uh, mic'd. So you, you may not hear him unless he... Hey, guys! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we are always happy when engineer-producer Andy joins the show. So I think that uh, gets our introductory matters out of the way. Uh, unless did, did they run out of... S- did they quit or did they run out of uh, stories? No, they... Um, so they quit. Uh, <laughs> one of them moved to Africa. Uh, That'll do it. One of them... This uh, is for more stories. Yeah, just making more stories. I'm out of stories. Better move to Africa. Yeah, and then one of them moved... um, She got a fellowship uh, in Canada, so she's doing that. She's like a um, a developmental psychologist. And then one of them uh, works at... uh, The other woman, Allison, works at a, um, um, a neighborhood... Uh, like a community center in in Madison, and that's just uh, it got pretty crazy there uh, when when Madison had its own uh, racially uh, you know ra- racial police shooting. Um, like no offense, know. but uh, to Allison, but yeah. that that seems like the cheapest excuse. Like, oh, I moved to Africa. Oh, I got an exciting fellowship in Canada. Oh, I got really busy down at work. Yeah, like that. Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking you to task, Allison. Work. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> Sounds like it's doing really Take well. Take that, Allison. I, I do have more questions, but maybe I'll just listen to the podcast, and sure. then that will answer my questions. Yeah, we can talk about it later, too. Cool. So I normally, at this point, ask the guest what topic they've brought to talk about, but last time, Dernberger made fun of me because I also announced it in the opening sure. intro, so it makes me look like I don't know something I said five minutes earlier. <laughs> it just seemed redundant. <laughs> so at this point, I will state definitively... Here we go. That Brennan, you uh, contacted me. You said you wanted to come on and talk about the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, the uh, yeah. Bill Watterson classic that ran from November of 1985 through December of 1995. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, if, if uh, you know, depending on how I edit this and everything, we might put it out on the 20th anniversary Ooh. of its final uh, edition, which which hues closer to the gimmick of my other podcast than this one, but <laughs> uh, it'll 20. it'll be timely and appropriate. So, yeah. what what caused you to want to select Calvin and Hobbes specifically? Mm. What what uh, history do you have with the strip? I remember it. Uh, I remembered it being important to me, uh, but I hadn't read it i mean i hadn't really sat down and read a bunch of them for a long time right uh maybe since high school and uh um so it it had been like 15 years and and i had remembered that it was important to me as a kid i I remember being really broken up uh when it when it ended Mm -hmm. uh, i had this this guy uh, who I really looked up to. It was in uh, like sixth grade. And this was a classmate, you mean? Yeah, like a cl- uh, classmate, Doug O'Keefe. 
I, it's just like he was the guy I met who I thought was the funniest person in the world. Yeah. And I thought I was a funny person. So yeah, I yeah, yeah. Worshipped him. And uh, we actually, I ended up sitting next to him in science class. And so we started to become a little bit of like classroom friends anyway. Mm-hmm. And I remember he liked Kevin and Hobbs. And I told him, I was like, man, it's ending. I'm really, I like, this is. I put myself out there. I was like, this is an emotional thing for me. I'm really sad about this. You made yourself vulnerable to a hero in a way. And he was like, who cares? (laughs) It's a comic strip. (laughs) It's like, okay, don't share feelings with other people at all. Yeah, you learned a valuable lesson there. Uh, But then when I I started rereading the whole thing, I started to, I realized that this actually was formative for me, like really important to who I am today and who I saw myself as. Um, uh, like th- just the level of of um, imagination he had. Like I, I always wished that I could imagine as deeply as it. I was also afraid, but I would have loved it and been horrified if I just had lost myself in class one day. Yeah, I just like ended up like saying something out loud from my like internal fantasy life, like wh- what was actually happening. Right, uh, I thought because you incredible. you um, you know we've been friends a long time mm-hmm. and you like Calvin, had a very rich uh, imagination as a child. Yeah. You know, I remember, um, and correct me if I'm getting the story wrong, but, like, you often pretended a part of your basement where there was a dirt floor, mm-hmm. like, was Fraggle Rock. Yeah. Yeah, and I and but I always felt, like, kind of a charlatan because I'd go in there, I'd be like, I know this is my basement. I'm never going to really believe this is Fraggle Rock or I'm never really going to believe that my the woods behind my house is Middle Earth and like there's some orcs that are just going to straight up like kill me and eat me. Right. Uh and I got to hide with my elven cloak. Like I always knew that I was pretending. And I I always felt a little like fake about that after having seen this this kid who just like snarls like a dinosaur in class. Um So let's well let's talk about that a little yeah. bit. Um the plot, I guess, if you could call it that, of Calvin and Hobbes, mm-hmm. more or less, if you just want to overall, you know, the entire story would be, it essentially follows the story of a six-year-old boy, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, is yeah. his age, Calvin, uh, no last name is ever given, and his uh, imaginary friend Hobbes, who is a stuffed tiger um, that he sees as a real tiger. So the strip often alternates panels where you see Calvin uh, from the perspective of an adult or someone else in his life. Mm-hmm where they see Hobbes as the stuffed animal that he is in, in quote, reality. Yeah. Um, but then often the panels, or entire strips, will be seen purely through the eyes of Calvin's imagination, where Hobbes is a fully realized being with kind of a wry sense of humor and mm-hmm. sort of a, a pessimistic outlook on things, I guess you could say. Yeah, more more like he's the anchor to Kelvin, right? Like, the just like, he... He's the foil to Kelvin. Yeah, he's he's an imaginary being who who is the voice of reason. Yeah, to, to this really imaginary, ch- uh, it's not imaginary, imaginative child. Yeah, it's interesting too that um, so I I kind of I was reexamining myself, especially after reading some of what Bill Watterson said about Hobbes, and he said that throughout the series he tried to be very careful to never be definitive about if Hobbes was a stuffed tiger that became that Kelvin imagined as real or a real tiger that became camouflaged when parents were looking at it. And I think that 
we all show our bias. Like I'm, right. I'm with you. I would have described it the same way you did. That he is a a stuffed tiger that Kelvin imagines real, and that's just like reality, <laughs> like uh, or like our adult bias, like coming in on us, right? Like, right, right. That's how we see it. I'm, but, I'm a practical reason based yeah. person, so to be honest, the other interpretation never even occurred mm-hmm. to me. I like it. I like hearing yeah. that and thinking that someone could have that view of the world. It sounds so much more magical than mine, yeah. but I'm a, a so practical that mm-hmm. that I would fail to see it that way. It also is a big part of his argument for why he never wanted to license stuffed characters or like oh, because yeah. here's this world where he like kept it loosey goosey, like or he kept it ambiguous, and then all of a sudden, if that kid has a stuffed Hobbs. On their bed, it answers the question. Answers yeah, then the you question. know for sure. Yeah, because he never he never reveals the origin of how these characters met. Um, in the very first strip, right? In the first week, uh, which which to kind of give the dates on mm-hmm. what we're talking about here, um, we are we are covering for our bookends the first week of Calvin and Hobbes, which covered November eighteenth, nineteen eighty five, through November twenty fourth, nineteen eighty five. And then the last week we'll talk about kind of in our second half of the episode, which is December 25th, 1995 through December 31st, 1995. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the very first strip of that Nove- November 18th, 1985, the very first strip shows Calvin catching Hobbs with a tiger trap with tuna. Um, but if you I was kind of reading up on this over the past week and it's at a different time. Hobbs makes comments about remembering when Calvin was a baby. Yeah. So clearly, you know, the tiger trap could have just been a game they were playing. It doesn't necessarily represent the first time they met. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, he left it murky when they first uh, got to know each other and and how Hobbes came into Calvin's life. Mm -hmm. So you're right that it was very deliberate in how they show that. Dernberger, I'm curious, because I kind of look at you as a more uh, artistic brain person than I am. Do Do you see... How do you view their relationship? Oh, man. I had way less uh knowledge of kelvin and hobbs than than the two of you than either of you this was really the first time that i read kelvin and hobbs so this is my first go around so i only have 14 comic strips that i've looked at and you're coming in as a a 30 something year old yeah that that makes a big difference i I never i mean like i've perused and browsed comic strips in like the paper but not ever really looked at any of them on a daily basis or anything like that so this is like this is all completely new to me and i like both sides of the argument but even though you say that i'm an artsy fartsy guy uh i i do kind of i i'm leaning more towards sort of what tim is saying and like it does seem now when i'm looking at it after having read it it seems like yeah hobbs is probably kelvin's toy Mm-hmm. also his imaginary friend but uh yeah i do like i do like the idea that uh hobbs could just be camouflaging himself and cloaking himself yeah whenever there's adults around or mm-hmm. i mean we, we do get so many more examples of calvin's imagination throughout the strip we don't get him in these two weeks we look at but mm-hmm. he frequently he has a character he portrays of a private eye he often plays a superhero mm-hmm. um i think there's like another space man space, space man, man ziff Spiff. yep Spiff, thank you. And he has a you know a cardboard box that can change his form yeah. into anything he wants, called the transmogrifier. Those <laughs> things are more clearly imaginary. Mm-hmm. So if this kid is so imaginative, Hobbes would easily fit into place with that character. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Th- I think 
I think a better example of of the ambiguity of his imagination is like what you're describing with the transmogrifier or the replicator when he turns it over or uh, he can turn it right side up and it becomes a time machine. Mm -hmm. And then he's like really having these adventures. Like uh, there's a series in the strip where he makes uh, duplicates of himself and there's, there's enough of them that everybody gets a a day a week at school. And then, (laughs) and then Sorry, so Michael Keaton. Yeah, you're not, you're not that original. <laughs> yeah, sorry, multiplicity. Yeah, uh, you guys. Oh, Bill <laughs> Watterson royalties. Uh, but they also multiplicity also owes me ninety minutes of my life back. <laughs> <laughs> you take that back, <laughs> you son of a bitch. Um, but in th- those cases, I think it's more ambiguous. Like, if Kelvin is just having the most amazing long con of a week for a kid, for a six-year-old to keep it up for a week, like every day going to school and be like, no, I don't, I don't remember that. That wasn't me who was here yesterday. That was replica number four. And he was saying that to his teacher. And so at that (laughs) point it's, it feels more like, man, the, the parents, it's more clear that the parents are just seeing a small piece of this kid's life. Uh, right and 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 maybe Kelvin has the whole story. I love the way, and you see this a bit in the the first week of the strips, and a little bit in the last two. But I love the way that you see the way that to a kid uh, of of six, not not so much mm-hmm. a younger kid, because um, you have a two year old, I have a three year old. Um, but a kid of six, how parents are important, but they're almost like a. a satellite in a child's life that comes in mm-hmm. to view every once in a while yeah. and then disappears for these long periods of time where he's just out playing by himself mm-hmm. so his dad comes in and he's a major part of his life but he can just as also easily not be there um, I really the, the relationship between Calvin and his parents is a hallmark of the series in the first week we really only get interactions with his dad but you, mm-hmm. you sort of get an idea of mm-hmm. what that relationship is like and then there's one one strip where he has an interaction with a teacher yeah and that that I thought was really interesting in that first week uh, there's an adult in every strip and, and kind of Bill Watterson figuring out how to how to make this kid how this kid goes right and and so because he's an adult and he's thinking back, uh, to to his childhood, he needs that adult voice in there to kind of anchor it. And definitely, you know, in the beginning, more so, it's a it's a gag a day strip where there's Very like so, set yeah. it up punchline at the end, you know. And so, do you, in looking at this first week, you know, through the benefit of hindsight and mm-hmm. and knowing where the strip would go, uh, do you see anything special in this first week? Do you see? What what do you see that maybe planted the seeds for sure. success later down the road? Yeah, so I I was thinking back, and I actually think that although I wasn't, of course, reading the paper in 1985 because I was like three, uh, that the I had gotten the book, um, Calvin and Hobbes. So that was I think this is actually my first introduction to Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes. Sure, uh, were, were these strips. Um, so what was interesting to me. Um. Yeah, I mean the the weeklies I I thought were fine, uh, but pretty typical of like a kid's strip, especially right. like the dinner one where they're they're his his Kelvin's like, what is this that we're eating? And uh, his dad's like, try it, you'll love it. 
And then uh, Calvin's like thinking in his head. He's like, oh, if they say you'll love it, you know it's going to be horrible or something like that. If they won't tell you what it is. Yeah, Yeah, if they won't tell you Um, what it is. You're right. And that, that, I mean, that just as easy could have been like High and Lois or Blondie or Mm -hmm. whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, that's about. What did you say? Act. Oh, <laughs> it's like my comic knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Garfield likes lasagna. He uh-huh. hates Mondays. Boy, does he! Um, I gotta admit, you know, I I liked Calvin and Hobbes, uh-huh. um, and I have memories of it, and I remember when it ended. That yeah. that definitely. I uh, my dad was really into it mm-hmm. and had the books. I was a lot simpler. I liked Garfield. Sure. Like yeah. I would go to the library and get the same Garfield books I'd already read uh-huh. and read through them again. Like, oh, that Odie sure is dumb. Yeah, there was a <laughs> there was a kid uh, in my middle school, Aaron Wenzel. Actually, I went to school all through high school, but in middle school. He was like always wearing Garfield clothes and yeah. always had a Garfield book. Like that was his uh, assigned reading. Like <laughs> all wherever he went in school, there's like a, a, I remember there being a Garfield book with him. But I, I think when you really see, uh, I think the possibilities is that first Sunday strip. And even though the Sunday strips change a lot, but the um, where uh, he it's got the throwaway joke at the beginning with the symbols, yeah, and they're arguing, and then they see this monster, and then all of a sudden you, it's like there's the the gag at the end that it's his his dad. But okay, th- this is a comic where they're gonna put monsters in it, and it's gonna get weird. Like yeah. I think it's gonna be, it's it's gonna do a good job of at least making you think about when you were a kid. Uh, and have like the, the a kid's voice to it. Well, and I think um, to go to that Sunday strip, mm-hmm. the it's the first time you get uh, a sign of what will become a hallmark of Calvin's character, which is like an intense intelligence and like an yeah. anti-authority bent. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you say, the majority of that strip is him in bed with Hobbes, and it's sort of about the anxiety of being a child and and fearing monsters in the dark, and then mm-hmm. imagining that your dad is the monster and having fun with that idea. But actually, the first two panels are kind of disconnected from that. Yeah. And it's Calvin marching, and there's like a yeah. line of dialogue behind him where he's protesting against bedtime, mm-hmm. and specifically, he calls it tyranny. Yeah. And like that word for a six-year-old is, you know, something unusual. And it's the first sign that Calvin has this this amazing vocabulary and a, um, a philosophical viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it's like I said, there's an anti-authority bent to it because that that becomes such a hallmark of the character, yeah. and is really in the first week the only indication you really get of that aspect. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that it's interesting too that you, you mentioned that throwaway joke at the beginning, which was like, uh, so the big thing that Watterson did in his career was he changed his Sunday formats and got them to change it because originally they were very constrained. And so um, the paper could chop up your Sunday however they wanted. And a lot of time they would cut off that top panel. So that top panel with the title, you almost always had to make it a throwaway joke because if it was connected to the rest and they chopped it off, you wouldn't understand. So I think Watterson does throwaway jokes, but I think he also does a good job of almost having like the prelude, you know, like like it it connects to the story, Mm -hmm. but it's still choppable. Um, yeah, yeah, and then uh, of course, when we talk about the 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 last week, you just see the difference in what he's able to do with a Sunday, uh, and some of that is technological changes over the run of the strip, but a lot of it is 
him being the big man in the room, the the most popular comic uh, creator in the U.S., arguably, uh, mm-hmm. definitely getting the most awards. Like for the run of the strip, I think he won the Comic Association's uh, best comic of the year every every year running. Yeah. Uh, and that that is interesting because if you read um, some of the interviews with him, what kind of my takeaway is is it's easy to think of comics as um, either just set setups for jokes mm-hmm. or in his case almost like a philosophical exploration of childhood. But when you read what he says, he talks so much about comics as a specific art form. Yeah, and the medium uh, he is fascinated by the medium of comics. Mm-hmm. It's not just that he was a he was funny and he was good at drawing and he had a viewpoint. It's that he loved comics specifically yeah. and he sought to make his mark in that realm. Uh, you know, he talks about, I'm not familiar with two, he, two of his big influences are something called Pogo and crazy and Cat. crazy cat. Have you looked into those at all? I, I, I have seen some of the strips and uh, it's something that I want to read. I, I remember having seen so, like one of my grandparents, I think Pogo ran in there, or maybe my aunt and uncle, like in Chicago, maybe Pogo ran in their paper sometimes, and yeah. I'd see it. But it's really dense on text, and it just wasn't something that at my at that age I was looking at comics I was able to sure. uh, take in. But the more obvious influence to a mainstream mm-hmm. eye would be Peanuts. Yeah, and he says that he saw Peanuts as a kid, and that was it for him. At that point, he knew he wanted to be uh, draw comics in some form, and he never, uh, he never diverged from that. For he was always striving towards it, which is another thing that's intimidating to me, because uh, I don't, I don't know that I've never had like that draw to so strongly to towards doing something mm-hmm. uh, like that. Um, yeah, I I get bored after doing a job for three years, and yeah. I want to move on to a new mm-hmm. job. Absolutely not. Uh, no one's listening. Don't worry about it. Well, I started. <laughs> I mean, I I we you and I started this podcast, and then months later, I started another podcast, and I have a third podcast gestating in the back of my head. In the books, in the works. In the books, yeah. Yeah. So it's just I you know I I get that too. Um, An itch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think and so often when you even when you do think you have a path towards what you want to go what you want to go get it's so easy to be distracted or yeah. to get veered off and so you know? Bill Watterson he went to I believe it was Kenyon College in Ohio and as he was coming in this guy I think his name's Pat Oliphant so I can't say that's how you pronounce his name exactly but just because I looked at the letters, and of course my brain went straight. Maybe like, it's maybe it's actually fat elephant. Yeah, no, I think it's probably like they're like my 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 brain was just like, oh, those letters have enough in common with something from Lord of the Rings. Just call him that. <laughs> the guy became a a, a renowned political cartoonist, okay. and so Bill Watterson came into school there, and he's like, this is perfect. I'm just going to take over for this guy, and. Uh, and that that's my that's my trajectory. So he yeah. did, um, he did some political cartoons for the the paper at, col- at the college, and he freely admits that they were not very interesting because he just didn't have an opinion at all. If you you might hear uh, one of our two podcast mascots, Ruby, playing with uh, our other podcast <laughs> yeah. mascot, Zelda's pig toy in the background. Yeah. Uh, producer Andy, could you produce that door shut? That. <laughs> <laughs> um. And uh, and so then when he graduated, he got a job right away. 
producer Andy produced a Pratt fall on his way up the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> um, that did he, look good. He got a job doing cart- political cartoons for uh, a paper in Ohio, which yeah. was the rival paper in the town for the guy where Pat Oliphant was. And he like really quickly got fired okay. uh, from it because he was just awful. He would just uh, spend all day there and the editor would keep telling him, no, this is garbage. And so he would just uh, write crazier and crazier uh you know, comics till the the uh, editor was like, go home. <laughs> so he gets fired from his dr- what he thought was his dream job. Then he just starts doing um, layouts for five years for like a shopper stopper. You know, the the circulars that come to your house and yeah, you try yeah, to yeah. stop where there's just a bunch of ads. So he was just slaving away at that for five years, making any comic he could think of, just everything he could think of, and sending it away and sending it away to to the syndicates who are yeah. the the companies that sell your comic out to to papers and it makes it makes perfect sense given as you alluded to um but just to spell it out for everyone uh he is licensing and merchandising of his characters is like anathema to bill yeah. Anderson. he hates it he's never really allowed it to any serious degree other than the books that you can buy He's done one, I think he did, he definitely did one calendar where he did all new art for it, and maybe he did a second year, but after that he hasn't done anything. Um, so the fact that he, bef- right before Calvin and Hobbes, was working in advertising and yeah. hating it is like the perfect introduction to his story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes it makes so much sense, it's unbelievable. It's crazy that he kept with it for that long, yeah, like after he, getting that kind of that intense of a rejection mm-hmm. like it, it's more than just being like you're not great at this maybe try something different like yeah. to just straight up get shit canned and yeah. t- be told that you're awful at what you're doing i mean obviously he had he hadn't found his voice in in, mm-hmm. in finding these characters to write about but yeah. uh that's pretty amazing that he that he had that drive to continue going with what he what he loved and what his passion was mm-hmm. i think another thing that's interesting about his story is that Although uh, what a lot of people remember him for professionally is like his f- fight with the syndicate over licensing. Uh, the syndicates were actually very good for his artistic growth. Like they really nurtured him uh, as an artist because he was actually writing these other strips. Like he'd occasionally try an animal strip and send that in. And then he started writing this strip that was just kind of about a couple of losers. Like he he wrote the a strip like this for his college paper, which is just like dudes who are getting their term papers in and a day late and drinking beer all the time. Yeah. Oh, but that hits too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> there was in one of these strips, there was a younger brother named Marvin. And one of his the syndicates he sent it to was like, hey forget about these losers and let's talk about Marvin. Like let's, let's do something with Marvin. And he, at first he was, he was kind of against it, but then he started into it and he got signed to a development deal where they give you like $2,500. And then they try, you, you try to develop this character and he, and he had developed the whole package and this syndicate was going to pass. Uh, but they were like, if you want to, you could drop this other character in Robot Robot Man or Robo Man, yeah. Who later did another comic, uh, another comic artist did end up taking, but it was just a licensing vehicle. Mm-hmm. They're like, we want to make Robo Man toys, so we're going to drop this robot. And so, of course, like Bill Watterson was like, no, there's right. no way. Yeah, and he tried to sell it to another um, syndicate, and they passed. And so, really, when he sent 
what was then Marvin uh, to to Universal, a press syndicate. It was a last ditch. Like this was really probably the end of him trying to develop this. And Universal uh, took him up on it. Uh, in like a final insult, he, he said, uh, I saw an interview with the woman who had first helped him develop Marvin. Uh, Bill Watterson had to come meet her and give her a check for the money they had given him to to, to develop this. Oh, like wow. the, the twenty so that he could be free and clear right. with Marvin and to, and she was really embarrassed because she hadn't wanted to try to sell him on the the Robo Man idea and yeah. he was really embarrassed. But then they, they did they had this break and so he could bring Marvin, which became Kelvin at the last minute because um there uh, there was another comic that came out that was called like Marv or maybe Marvin that that year. The Martian. <laughs> not that guy. Not that guy. You know what's funny is uh, I read a, a sorry. Go ahead. A quote from the guy um, from Universal, the one that yeah, he, the yeah. syndicate that he did sign with, mm-hmm. who said that what kind of sold him on it was that his like eight year old read the yeah the early strips and said that it was like Doonesbury for kids, <laughs> and I find that completely not believable because <laughs> a the early strips. The early strips don't show any of that. Like that's something yeah. you say later because it mm-hmm. became so philosophical. But B, what eight-year-old knows what the fuck Doonesbury <laughs> is? Like that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no way that a child said, "Oh, this is like Doonesbury for kids." Uh-huh. That's, that's what an adult says after something becomes successful. <laughs> People love those kid stories, right? Like supposedly, Lord of the Rings got published because uh, the they sent it and the the publishers like. 14 year old kid looked at it and it was like oh this is incredible and so this businessman was like yes i will sink lots of money (laughs) to what my kid i love my child so much seriously like i love my child but like he's a dumbass like he's a kid like he doesn't know what the hell is going to be commercially successful uh no it's true i mean just to take a break on the show to call my kid a dumbass for no reason that's the risk you take man yeah Maybe that that one kid isn't the dumbass. Maybe he falls in line with the 60% of the other people that who are going to love that shit. So to go back to uh, the Peanuts connection, yeah. Um, what I kind of liked, this is a quote from Bill Waterston. He said when, when he talks about connecting with Charlie Brown, or Peanuts, excuse me, mm-hmm. the expressiveness of Charlie Brown's misery connected, but it was Snoopy and the more fantastic silly stuff that grabbed me. Mm-hmm. And that makes perfect sense when you think about what Calvin and Hobbes became, it, there is a there's a lot about childhood, maybe not misery. Calvin is not miserable in the way that Charlie Brown mm-hmm. is miserable, but he he feels like put upon by society and by authority, and he rebels against that. Yeah. But there also is a rich imaginative life that makes it more something that also kids can connect to beyond just you're a kid you feel oppressed mm-hmm. by adults. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he really created the same dichotomy that Peanuts had where one week it's like, holy shit, Charlie Brown's entire existence is meaningless and awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the next week it was Snoopy riding his doghouse to fight the Red Baron in the mm-hmm. sky. You know, he had elements of both. It's really, really easy to see how big of an impact Peanuts had yeah. on Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, and I think Bill Watterson took it in a different direction too because I think uh, the, the the strip is really about... Uh, Calvin and his best friend, where Charlie Brown does not have a best right, friend, right? At all, like m- not even Snoopy, like is his best friend, nope. right? Nobody likes Charlie yeah. Brown, really. 
Yeah, Charlie definitely seems way more pessimistic. At least in the first set, like the first week of the strip, like Calvin doesn't seem terribly pessimistic. He's like he's just a very imaginative kid, mm-hmm. and uh, he does tell funny jokes and stuff like that. But yeah, he's not uh, as as uh, <laughs> woe is me. Yeah, as uh, Charlie Brown is for sure. And where is the the adults in Peanuts? Um you know, are famously in the animated shows depicted as like trombone. Yeah. You know, they're they're just they're not presented as real characters. They're just the nameless, faceless authority. Calvin's uh, relationship with adults are you know fully formed. We mm-hmm. we see the adult perspective on Calvin's antics as well. So yeah. I, I appreciate that when the adults are speaking to Calvin, they're speaking to him at just normally. They're mm-hmm. not dumbing anything down to him because he is a child. They're just talking to him. Like you would talk to an, another adult, which yeah. is really nice and refreshing. I mean, it is written by an adult, so it makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Calvin's parents, I, I really love the way that they have sort of a sardonic look on having such a goofball, rebellious kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you, you occasionally get strips where they are talking to each other without him in the room. And it's, you know, they make jokes about, like, he must be switched at birth or like yeah. you know different things like that but they clearly love calvin it's just he's a lot to he's a lot yeah. to handle that's that was interesting i uh i had heard an interview with um the creator of pearls before swine so steve pastis which uh, uh bill waterston did some strips of that after he retired from yeah maybe calvin actually Hobbs, right? it was maybe just last year he did like or maybe two years ago uh he sometime after 2010 he did like three, a few days, uh, like secret strips, like a secret guest artist. Oh, and then um, it was like afterward. They and said afterwards, he revealed it. And the story of what this guy Stephen had to do to find him, and actually do the artwork because like Bill Watterson doesn't use uh, email, and that does not surprise me. Yeah, the least. <laughs> but like if if he was gonna work with somebody or even like work with his editors now, Stephen just like emails his art away right. and so like bill actually had to do their originals and then they maybe faxed them but maybe sent them in the mail i can't recall like so he just put in a lot of work to do this but um so there's an interview before this interaction happened and this guy steven was saying that he felt always felt like calvin was the like there's a pariah like his parents were cold to him and his teachers were but i i see what you're saying much more tim in that um, there there are several stri- strips throughout the run where like his parents do really nice things for him or are super in- understanding when um, when Kelvin does something like uh, ruin their car right like sometimes <laughs> parenting gets uh, too real uh, and it's like it's really awful and uh, you just want to walk away from it uh, I've had that feeling a lot. I think anyone who criticizes Calvin's parents are probably not parents. <laughs> yeah. Also, you only see them when it's the worst. So like, that's the only time the parents need to step in. You, you he's not gonna sh- show a comic strip where there's just like a do- a normal day, right? Plus, uh, plus, it makes sense that if you consider the character of Calvin mm-hmm. becoming an adult, I see him becoming very much like his dad with that dry kind of droll sarcastic mm-hmm. wit about him like that that seems like where the character of calvin would be as a 30 late 30s father sure. you know so yeah, it, which, in the sorry about that in the ahead. bookends 
at least yeah. they they only show Kelvin's mom in one of the strips barely like barely and uh she's actually kind of teaming up with Kelvin in uh making fun of the dad. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like it's uh maybe like a role reversal of what tip what's typically happening which we, uh, what you guys are talking about is the parents saying where did this kid yeah. fr- come from? He's not one of us, but it's Kelvin and the mom saying that the dad is the real big weirdo. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I was wondering, Brennan, what, considering we're talking about the beginning bookend mm-hmm. right now, what do you have any recollection of your first experience to Calvin and Hobbes? Yeah, I think it. I think it was with the the uh, the original strip, and uh, I don't know. Hearing Bill Watterson talk about a lot about how how good the end strips got yeah. and how all his missteps at the beginning. I don't know. My favorite comics uh, are are some of the early ones, and two in particular. Uh, I remember uh, where I was talking this being really like formative to my personality. Um, one of them, like Kelvin, is just walking by the phone in his house, and it rings, and he picks it up, and he orders a pizza, and then he just hangs it up. Uh huh. And then he <laughs> looks at the audience, and he's like, "I like to make every day everybody's day a little more surreal." <laughs> and I remember reading that and being yeah. like, yeah, that's what you do with your life. Yeah. And then the other one is Kelvin's like out at a, in a stream, like digging around in this stream. And Hobbs comes up and he asks him what's going on. He's like, oh, I'm looking for bugs and slimy stuff. And Hobbs says, why? And Kelvin's like, I must obey the inscrutable exhortations of my soul. <laughs> and then Hobbs just like blinks and then starts looking for stuff. And yeah. I was like, yeah, that too. Like, that's what you should do. If like, if something moves you, <laughs> just do it. That's, yeah. that, that's something important talking to you. And I, when I read those comics, I, I, I thought back, I, I remembered reading them for the first time and uh, how those just like, I don't know, there were big markers in my formation uh, of how I was going to interact with, with the world. Uh, and they were really important to me. And there's other things too. Like I didn't own a comb probably for 15 years because I wanted my hair to look like Kelvin's. Still don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and there's like later on, you were talking about the philosophical bent and there's definitely like an environmental ethic. And I ended up, I, that was very strong in my life. In fact, I went to school for, to be an environmental scientist. And, uh, and so I, 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 that was also in my house, but I think definitely Kevin and Hobbes reinforced that view of the world for me Right. Uh, uh, growing up. I mean, it really does seem, knowing you as I do, that I can see instantaneously why you would feel especially drawn to a character like Calvin. Um, that makes perfect sense to me, because you would be a, 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 certainly an above a- average intelligence for a kid, but also that level of imagination, that level of enjoying playing outside you know you don't get a lot of um you know calvin comments on uh like tv society you know Mm -hmm. a lot more than you ever see him watching tv yeah you know he's more critical of that aspect of of modern day living than he is partaking in it Mm -hmm. um and when he does comment on partaking in it it's it's in a way that's satirical yeah um so so i definitely can see where that would connect for you just hearing you talk about it it makes me want to live my life like with more whimsy and be more <laughs> yeah. fancy free. Uh-huh. Like uh just mess with people a little bit but yeah. without 
like hurting anybody. Right. Like not no. There's no mal- malice yeah. in it. Right. It's it's all just a, a little bit to make things more surreal. Yeah. Like uh, so, people say, oh, wait a second. And when I have those moments in real life, when they happen, mm-hmm. those are the things that make my day. You know, that's yeah. the thing that you're going to remember and be like, remember that when that really weird thing happened? Yeah. And how interesting that was. I like that. Uh, Andy actually told me one time the first time he ever remembered seeing me. I can't remember if it was I, 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 f- I fell. Yeah. I can't remember. I slammed into a window or I just fell down the, s- the stairs to our calf. Like at St. Mary's, like to the like yeah, to the cafeteria, and that was something I had like worked. For anyone on. who couldn't hear Andy, he said he's pointing out that Brendan, what he means, he fell. He literally threw himself down several flights. So that of was stairs a, it. Was a amusement of others. It was, yeah. yeah, it was. It was like something I had worked on for, for a long time to be able to just like bust that out. Because uh, I just love the image of like you're walking down the stairs or you're there and all of a sudden you see somebody tumble down the stairs and fall and then just get up and run away. <laughs> <laughs> There's like no idea who that person is. This is like their, your first interaction with them. Um, it, it got to that what you were talking about. I remember uh, uh, this is unconnected to Calvin Hobbes. I remember the first time I met Brendan. Uh, I was deeply in love with a young lady named <laughs> Kelly <laughs> yeah. uh, who is now my wife. But at the time was uh, not not my girlfriend or anything. She was, in fact, kind of still sort of dating like the boy back home. You know, in college, you get that girl that's dating the boy back home still. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went over to her place to see what she was up to. And she was studying with this guy named Brendan, uh, who sits before us today. And uh, in order to show how unintimidated I was and how how uh, I was not like going to be some guy who, who saw her hang out with this dude and got all jealous I went and got them both some Taco Bell. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, hey, hey, guy, I'm cool with you. Here's some tacos. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first time we met. Uh, yeah, and then I took that as a clear signal that uh, Tim was telling me to back off. <laughs> <laughs> tacos definitely mean back yeah. off. It Talk- was it was my way of, of peeing all over her, to, yeah. uh, to use dog terms. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, then we, and then we, like, we, uh, right after that, then... You also invited me to come like watch Simpsons or some show with you too. And uh so then you guys were like cuddling a little. And then I was like, "Oh, okay. Uh, this is like clear back off." Which is a, to be fair is a signal that I needed to get at that time. Uh right? So good job. Everyone. Well, uh, anything anything <laughs> else you guys want to say about the first week of Calvin and Hobbes? I think, you know, as we talked about, the the drawings are maybe a little more simpler. The mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like Brennan used the exact perfect term. It's gag-a-day. It's set up punchline. It's not as much philosophy-based. Yeah. Um, but you, you see the kernels of, of something better to come. Mm-hmm. It definitely felt that way. And as a, someone who had pretty much zero knowledge going in, I, I was confused by the idea of a young child catching a tiger. Sure. Were you – yeah, because <laughs> um, it's – I can't remember when it's um, you don't see that that you don't see a parent view of Hobbes until maybe like the third. Yeah, I got the it third up here one right now. It's uh, one, two, three. Yeah, yeah, the, the third. third you're right. Yeah, because yeah. it's at, so the at first day. you're like, this kid just has a tiger. Yeah. Right. He's got a tiger buddy. Yeah. And then you and then you do get to see that stuff. Yeah. So it's uh, a lot of the stuff that 
that you guys brought to the table right at the beginning all sheds so much light on this entire story <laughs> to me. Sure. You know what I love? This is a Bill Watterson quote, and uh, I think I'll close on this before we go into our, our break and come back to talk about the second half, or our second bookend, rather. Uh, he said, as Calvin and Hobbes went on, the writing pushed the drawings into greater complexity. One of the jokes I really like is that the fantasies are drawn more realistically than reality, since that says a lot about what's going on in Calvin's head. And you definitely get that with Hobbes. You know, when he's stuffed, he's very basic stuffed tiger design. But when when adults are out of the room, he's so much more lively and interesting. Mm-hmm. And in general, that's the truth for Calvin. There, you know, Bill Waterston really enjoyed using white space in his comics a lot. And when things are the imagination, uh, Calvin's imaginary world, it's so much more detailed and visually interesting. And just to call back on what Brandon was talking about, the very first Sunday strip that's exactly what you're talking about where the monster enters the room. Mm -hmm. That's definitely the most detailed part of of the whole entire first seven strips. And uh, that is the most imaginative that Kelvin gets at the beginning. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, on that note, I think we will go ahead and take a break and we will be back after this to talk about the second bookend of our show, the final week of Calvin and Hobbes. the bookends podcast we're here with brendan panky talking calvin and hobbs we are now going to talk about the second uh well i keep saying second week but what i really mean is the last week of calvin and hobbs the second of our two bookends which would be december 25th through december 31st 1995 mm-hmm. so brendan you've shared a little bit uh about talking to your friend about how you felt uh yeah. That it was shutting down and how he rebuffed you. Is there any any other memories you have of, of the final strip? I remember hearing that it was it was gonna end and uh pretty early on. Like I think at the beginning of the year he had decided. So and that's you were how old at this time? Uh so I was thirteen and so I started cutting out as many of the strips as I could and, and just keep and I had them in like a scrapbook. <laughs> for a long time i don't i don't really have many photos from like growing up with my friends or anything right. but for a long time i had this <laughs> scrapbook of of kelvin and Hobbes, especially the sundays because at that point he had um his syndicate had helped him uh win a fight with papers to get uh his his space i think was one and a half sizes of the normal. I do remember it was huge and they in couldn't, the Sunday, in they the couldn't chop anything yeah they still could like reduce it to a third of a page but they could still couldn't chop yeah um and uh, and so he just went crazy w- uh, with the art and his art had, uh he was always known as one of the best uh artists uh making comics sure and then at that but at that point he got to do uh just whatever he wanted 
also at that by that point, I think there are twice as many colors that you could possibly have. Oh, interesting. Um, for the Sundays, and he he said actually that the Sundays at that point they took an, an like three times as long as as they used to to create the Sunday. Sure, but he was willing to do it. Uh, because he felt better as an artist. Which and is, he had taken, we should say, in the intervening years, uh, in that 10-year period, mm-hmm. there was almost uh, two full years that he took off. Yeah, he, I think one was like about a nine-month break, and the other was yeah. about like eight or, or so. So we had alluded to his licensing fight with the syndicate. Yeah. So the syndicate owned, as, as a new comic creator signing up, you sign all, um, all rights to uh to license over to the syndicate so he really How hilarious is it by the way that you've got this artist who yeah. wants to keep his thing pure and the organization that he's opposing is called the syndicate, syndicate. it's the most sinister sound like that's thing. who the avengers should be fighting yeah. you know <laughs> um but so they own it all and and at th- by this point people knew uh licensing was a big deal because you had garfield which has been licensed on like over 2000 products yeah, and it's why people got sick of it. Uh, there was a great, uh, I heard a, a quote from Jim Davies, uh, the creator of Garfield. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, Oh, there's never been a product I turned down for licensing. There almost was one. Somebody came to me saying that they didn't want there. They wanted to make a Garfield toilet seat. I was like, hold on. I don't see how that goes along with my character. But they came back and they had some good points. And so I, I gave it the go ahead. Oh, wow. Um, and you know what you... I, I want to say um, before we get to because uh, yeah. I, I really felt like in this second week of strips. Yeah. Uh, I felt like there's one that I almost it probably isn't. But I felt it was almost specifically targeted. Garfield. A jab. Yeah. But it probably was at the industry at large. The comics industry. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. too. Um, he's it's... he's Calvin's making a snowman. And I'll, I'll mm-hmm. just kind of read read the dialogue. This, yeah. This yeah. Is exactly what I was. Mm-hmm. thinking. So Hobbs asks what he's making. And he says a generic snowman. I used to make original snowman, but it was time consuming. Hard work. So I said, heck, this is crazy. Now I crank out crude imitations of what's already popular. It takes no time or thought. And most people don't care about the difference anyway. And Hobbs says, so cynical, yet so practical. And Calvin finishes with, and what good is originality if you can't crank it out? Yeah. And I like, what a clear shot across the bow of the comics industry on his way out the door. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. And, and so he was, he was, he, so he got, like I said before, he got the comics, the highest award from the Comic Association. Right. Like every year running, he never went and picked it up in person. He gave like two talks ever where he was invited, and one was like the angry old man speech where he took everybody <laughs> to task. Yeah, but I mean, learning what happens with comics. So the syndicate owns it, so they have the choice. If you die or retire, they can give it to another artist. Oh. So that's why we still have Andy Cap, and that's sure, why we still sure. have High and Lois, and those are like Beetle Bailey, Beetle Bailey, and and some of those are all the same creator. There's like. Beetle Bailey, that guy does a couple other, and it's like BC and Wizard of Id, that's the same guy. Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, sometimes the the creator retires and just gives it to a team of artists, or sometimes they uh they uh it's just a it's a legacy strip and and because those jokes have worked, they're gonna keep it in the paper. And that's why that isn't really a vibrant uh, artistic community, right? Because everybody's and and Everybody's just looking for how to continue it. And he understood, like, uh, he was fine, you know, with a creator doing this. This is their livelihood and not, like, 
retiring when they're out of jokes and and kind of keeping their strip in stasis themselves but this thing where you get somebody else to keep making it yeah so i mean it's it's always easy to believe that you especially in your childhood it was the golden age of whatever it was right. that you were interested in mm-hmm. um but i mean we had we had such good comics like the far side and calvin and hobbs those are probably the two best mm-hmm. of all time like and it's they, hard to imagine you know for, i think i yeah. think that's a generally agreed upon mm-hmm. viewpoint i remember you know getting the paper and being like excited to read the comics yeah and that just compl- is not i don't even know if they still have comics to pay i assume they do yeah. Com- but I, I don't go for them at all sticking with kind of on the same line with what tim was talking about the, actually the the next day's strip i was wondering if that was the you know since he was getting towards the, yeah if he was if this was kind of a metaphor for being at at the top of your game and being the best at what you're doing because and maybe you know it's the last week that he's doing it and he's saying mm-hmm. like well yeah it's really it's really great and amazing to be the best at what you're doing but it's also really tiring and it's hard and yeah. it's a lot of hard work yeah to summarize the strip for the listener um calvin is talking about the newest issue of chewing magazine which gives advice on how to be the best chewer yeah gum uh, chewer bubble gum chewer yeah and and calvin says that we serious chewers need a lot more than strong jaw muscles you know we need to chew hour after hour we need a total cross training fitness regimen and Hobbs says so the idea is to increase the amount of uh the hobby you can endure and calvin says right when you're doing good at it it's really miserable Mm-hmm. And that I definitely think you're you're absolutely right, Dernberger. That could easily be seen as a metaphor of the artistic process. I mean, he first he's kind of like attacking other comics for being so lowbrow and like just doing these cookie cutter things, and mm-hmm. then he's kind of saying, "Look, I kind of understand why you're doing that because being as good as I am at this is exhausting. It's tiring. It's yeah. hard mm-hmm. work." He he. Uh, more than that, he said that what he had to do was. He, I think part of the reason he became known for being so standoffish is that to be able to crank out 3,160 strips in oh, those wow. 10 years, right? And dailies, he had to get every, iron every single bump out of his life because he had to create those strips and he wanted lead time because he didn't want to just put out whatever crap he came up with. He wanted to be the uh, ability to throw something away if it was a bad idea. And he talks about some of those ideas. There's a really good book exploring Kelvin and Hobbes. Uh, and he actually, I think it was last year it came out, and he like ended Radio Silence and did this huge, exhaustive interview, which was amazing for his ability to stay on message from when he was younger, uh, <laughs> but be friendlier about it. He was very amiable right. in it. He yeah, was, both the quotes I read earlier are from that because there's mm-hmm. so few interviews you can actually find with him yeah. um, that I, I didn't read that full interview, but I read some excerpts. And yeah, it's one of the few original sources you can find where he talks about anything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so he did. And so that was exhausting too, just to... Uh, like if he got sick or just something happened to screw that up, then all of a sudden he was writing at deadline right, the whole right. time. He it's, had to make sure to work ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, you definitely understand why since he took it as seriously as he did and he didn't just churn out the mm, lasagna, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. that it's easy to understand that why when he walked away, He's really very rarely been heard of from since. He's mm-hmm. done a couple lectures. 
He, I think I read that he sold a painting for charity. Uh, he did the um, Pearls Before Swine that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But really, you never hear about the guy. He never really, you know, I think he, who knows what he does. He's the he's the Salinger of, of yeah. comic creators. S- uh, supposedly, he's just spending all his time uh, becoming good at painting. He says Salinger. I would say Freddie Prince Jr., but, you know. <laughs> He oh, reached that's, the that's pinnacle <laughs> of what he could be and then disappeared. So, Dernberger, you said earlier that you weren't really aware very much. No. You weren't a comic guy. So do you you don't remember when this ended? It wasn't like a, it's nothing that stands out for you? Honestly, I, and uh, yeah, uh, really no comics make any huge impact in my life. Um, but getting into the last week in the, the second part, the second bookend on this, I could see why this was a really great comic. He did start to get more philosophical and get into more metaphorical stuff. And uh, I really, really enjoyed the last two uh, Mm -hmm. dailies, Uh, the one about New Year's resolutions and then kind of the one that's sort of going off into the abyss or like, well, going out into into the world and finding your own path and everything. I yeah. just thought they were really strong, really well written, mm-hmm. and it. I think it was obvious that within that ten years, he had come a really long way in his writing. The last strip is uh, iconic. I mean, yeah. I like I said, I'm not nearly as big a Calvin Hobbes fan as you are. I remember liking it, but it was never mm-hmm. like special to me. You know, it was just a thing I enjoyed. Um, but I c- have clear memory of how that one. You know, I've I've remembered it ever since the the time it first ran. Him and Hobbes are walking through the woods, and they they have a sled, and they're just talking about sort of the love of, of being a kid and being outdoors and and uh, adventuring and the possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he kind of conveys that possibilities as we mentioned. He uses white space um, quite a lot, and and the final strip, and as we mentioned, he was up to like a page and a half or a half yeah. page, you know, by the end. So, but it's really only divided into um, like three panels one panel within a panel mm-hmm. so you have your top half where they're kind of talking and then in the the bottom half it's a large rectangle and within that panel uh calvin says to hobbs it's a magical world hobbs old buddy and then most of the panel is white space with them on a toboggan in the far right hand side of the frame with just a few trees mm-hmm. that they're heading off into and calvin says let's go adventuring and like what a perfect end and i mean it, you could it, not I think we've and, talked about on this show because the, of the nature of the show. Yeah. Endings can be so, um, such a doubt. So they Blase, let you down. It's just sort of like yeah, Bleh. yeah. It, it's a last gasp instead of a triumphant it, moment. Yeah, this is a triumphant moment, not a high note. And and it was just, it was perfect for what today brought. When waking up this yeah, morning and looking true. out, it was it was exactly the right thing to read. And then let the dog out and just be like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, my all this snow. The first thing I heard this morning was my, my three-year-old son so excited that there was this much snow outside, mm-hmm. you know? And I love, I love as, as a northerner, because so much of the country doesn't even get the joy of snow. Um, I, I just love that childhood connection with there's snow. This is exciting. This is possibilities. It's a whole new world. Yeah. I, yeah, that, I think it's a, just, uh, he, uh, it's so obvious that he knew what made his strip work for the pe- for his readers. I think you get a lot of creators uh, who sometimes don't get what people like about whatever they're creating, yeah. and then they when they try to sum it up, it's it's like ham fisted. 
but this was just like so obvious that uh obviously you know kelvin of course it's the it's the world as a blank slate because of the way he can uh put his imagination onto it yeah Uh, and we mentioned all those characters which interestingly like don't figure in in this last this last week it's just him and Hobbes like that is what this comic is about like mm-hmm. this this friendship and, and uh, sailing off on forever which is one of the reasons I don't like the the person who came back later and wrote the comic of Kelvin as an adult with his own kid yeah that kind of became like viral years mm-hmm. ago yeah and it's because yeah I don't even want to think about right, it right for 10 years Kelvin was six years old, and Bill yeah. Watterson so clearly said he's six forever. Like mm-hmm. Kelvin right. is here for you, and and that that's it. Yeah, I mean, the, I think I think the the thing is to excuse it a little bit. Yeah, is when you start out as an artist, I think most people are imitating something, mm-hmm. and it's just that now that we have the internet, your first attempts should sure. be seen by millions of people mm-hmm. if it catches on the right way. So whoever came up with that probably would have been embarrassed about by it 10 years down the road right. when they found their own voice. Sure. But it just, it hit the right nostalgia button and, mm-hmm. you know, ended up being seen by millions of people. So they probably might share your opinion if they were able to just get the benefit of hindsight on right. it. Right, right, right. But our society, we, um, you know, the the term that, uh, oh, I can't think of his name now, uh, the North Dakotan uh, social writer, Chuck Klosterman. Oh, yeah. He says that we live in an accelerated culture is the sure. term he always uses. And that, you know, I think it kind of falls within that. Mm-hmm. Things things move so fast nowadays, instantaneously, really, that um, artists maybe don't have as much chance to develop their own voice sure. as they would have before. Or Chuck, they, Chuck and, Klosterman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And this thing was, right, like, this thing that has stuck with me was like a blip that probably most people who saw it, right, when it went viral, they don't recall that that existed um uh but but right like it's stuck in my craw i mean it I doesn't do. it's probably not as bad as the no calvin pissing on no. the ford logo no. or calvin praying oh yeah. that's who that guy is is that yeah calvin that's Pee- calvin yeah, that's peeing yeah. on yeah. like oh the man you guys should have started with that uh, you yeah. buried the lead tim <laughs> <laughs> i i still love the um in the movie hot rod where Chris yeah. Parnell's character has Calvin and he's peeing and the pee is simultaneously going on FM radio and <laughs> television at the same time. And he has this long explanation as to what is making that possible. <laughs> it's just like the best satirical look at, yeah. uh, you know, this guy has worked so hard to not license his yeah. work. And what is the most popular unofficial licensing? It's Calvin the peeing worst. on shit. Yeah. It's Which is like, like not, that that character at all if you're right? someone who enjoys that as a sticker you're someone that doesn't get what calvin is yeah. at all yeah you just hate the bears or <laughs> hate ford like uh, such a big part of his message was uh anti-consumerism yeah and yet here he's being used to pee on brands because you associate more with a different brand <laughs> like yeah, nothing yeah. could be more consumerist mm. than uh-huh. brand loyalty mm-hmm. over uh, it's insane um he has a pretty good outlook on it at least for someone who you'd think would be mm-hmm. just angry about it you know the quote i read from him in that interview we talked about yeah. or this was actually a different one um he did one and i uh i forget it was one of those buzzfeed type websites where i was like shocked that he had done an interview sure. with them um but he said 
that long after people have forgotten what Calvin and Hobbes is, those stickers are his ticket to immortality. So he has at <laughs> least you you would yeah. think that he's kind of grumpy in his basement about it but mm-hmm. it seems like as he's gotten older he's got a sense of humor about it if nothing else yeah and i think when he doesn't have to defend his creation anymore because amazingly he he said himself that he expected it within a year to kind of have died out but right. people are still buying the uh buying the books and de- rediscovering that way which he said they was the way they were mostly rediscovering or discovered in the first place and within the f- last five years there's been um, two, like a, a book that's a terrible book, <laughs> but a book somebody <laughs> wrote about like trying to discover him and the legacy of Kevin and Hobbes. Yeah. And then a movie that somebody made about the legacy. Like of a Kevin documentary about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Dear Mr. Watterson. The, the major, podcast. that, yeah, there's a podcast oh, now. Sure. We're, we're adding <laughs> to it. Woohoo! How? But we're not, we're not going to like call him on the show. No, we didn't like dig worst. into his personal life. And that guy who wrote the book. Uh, looking for Kevin and Hobbes, like found his parents and oh. like got an interview with them. If it's That's such like, a weird thing where like your hero hates he he closely guards his privacy, so like you want to learn more about your hero, but to do that you have to violate everything he stands for. And what made him your hero <laughs> to begin <laughs> right. with? Yeah. It's probably a sign that you should just enjoy what he. Yeah, it's like you are destroying your hero by doing <laughs> yeah. that. And you and he, I mean he has Watterson has been generous. Like he gave almost all of his original strips, and took them to there's a comics, uh, a comic art museum, uh, at a college in Ohio, which okay. is where Watterson is Oh, where he's from. from, yeah. And so they curate the strip, and you can go there and see his originals. Which are are gigantic. Like when they're driving, when they're drawing them, these things were huge. Yeah. And they even have like you get to see where he whited something out, or you know, erased something and changed his mind. So he has let you into the part of his world that he was willing to share, right? Like the 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 artistic part, the the comics part. He just doesn't want to share everything else with you. He doesn't want to sign things for you or talk to you. You know, answer your fan yeah. mail. And I do feel like, um, you know, we talked a little bit about how comics are dying, if not almost dead, mm-hmm. in terms of newspaper print comics. Right. Certainly web comics mm-hmm. live on. Um, but to me, I, I was thinking about what is the legacy of Calvin and Hobbes. And to me, probably the best living example um, would be Adventure Time, the Cartoon Network show, because uh, right. that features a, a, a relationship between a boy um, who's older than Calvin? Mm-hmm. He's he's adolescent. He's sort sure. of going through puberty at the time of the show, mm-hmm. or at least where we're at now. Um, and his best friend, who's a dog named Jake, who is not imaginary. This is it's it's far after an apocalypse, so everyone has, um, you know, the world has been changed and shaped sure. by this nuclear apocalypse, and so there's a lot of people with magic powers, yada yada mm-hmm. yada. But still, just the fact that it focuses a lot along this relationship between a, a young boy and his best friend, who's like a an animal of some kind. Um, but just their relationship to me echoes Calvin and Hobbes sure. quite a bit, um, where especially the magic dog that is his best friend is often the voice of reason between the mm-hmm. two, you know. Uh, so I, I do think there's a legacy. It's just you kind of got to look to other places for I've where heard, it is. I've heard really great things about Adventure Time. And now as I hear you talking about it, it uh, it reminds me, in addition, uh, of a another cartoon uh, called home movies oh sure yeah uh, there w- there wasn't 
an imaginary friend, but there certainly was a ton of imagination that was brought forth in that. Mm-hmm. And and kids that are smarter than they should be. Yeah. Um, kids that are probably smarter than the adults that are in the show. Right, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, so I don't know if we're getting to a close, but this is the second to the last strip, which I thought was just really great and kind of had a little bit of that cynicism before going into the very last one which was really actually pretty sweet mm-hmm. but the 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 cynical nature of it made me really <laughs> smile especially uh considering the time of year uh <coughs> so hobbs is saying to calvin are you making any resolutions for the new year and uh calvin says back yeah i'm resolving to just wing it and see what happens and then they're kind of walking off into the distance and uh and hobbs says so you're staying the course and Calvin says, I stick to my strengths. <laughs> yeah. And it just made me feel like, yeah, that's yeah. usually my New Year resolution is just like, make this year just a l- maybe a little bit better than what last <laughs> year was. Ah, just as yeah. long as I don't make it worse, I think I'm doing all right. Uh, maybe, maybe within the month like leading up to this, there's this, uh, s- there's this comic. So I think one thing that Watterson did really well is he wasn't episodic. Uh, through the whole thing, like yeah. the personalities changed and grew despite all the time Kelvin spends, like the one you just read, Darren, about uh, uh, not changing at all. Like there's definitely growth as characters, mm-hmm. but there's uh so one of his consistent uh, arch nemeses is his um, his babysitter, Rosalind, and. Uh, oh, I, I, yeah, I know where you're going. I remember her last appearance. Yeah, and so they, they, he's like locked her out of the house. He's uh, claimed that he's flushed her, uh, her homework. She's a high schooler, uh, so like she was studying for a big physics test or something, and he stole it and was like flushing it down the toilet. But on this, uh, the on her last appearance, um, she just makes a deal with him, uh, and like meets him on his terms, and is like, listen, if you. Don't mess around. We will play a game, any game you want to play. And uh, and he's like, really, any game? Because no, he's never, you could tell, he's never had this offer, right? Like, no one has, no adult has ever been like, let's meet you on your terms, kid. And uh, so he's like, of course, we got to play Kelvin Ball. And so Kelvin Ball is this game he and Hobbs have made up. The only rule really is that you can't play it the same way twice. So there, you make up the rules as they go along, and uh, and at first Rosalind's like, "Oh my God, this is going to be awful!" Like he makes her wear a mask and he sings a song. There's so- always songs. It has a in theme it. song. Yeah. Yeah, and then she's like, "This is going to be awful," and then sh- she says, "It's almost like you're making up the uh, y- you know, the rules as you go along," and he's like. Oh, she caught on, and then and then she <laughs> beats him at Kelvin Ball. She just like wails on him, and she gets it, and he has the most fun he's ever had, probably in his entire life. Yeah, like him and Hobbs and Rosalind together, like just like oh my god, like Rosalind's grown as a person. Like Kelvin is is getting a wider world that isn't just him and Hobbs, although that's definitely like an important part of that world, but. Um, it struck me when I, I read through all the comics recently, like that, that's this like, uh, uh, character peak. And then, uh, a little bit later we get this kind of like, you get the end of, uh, uh where they sail off. Yeah. Uh, but through that whole thing, that, that kind of arc was going on. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It was, it was so good. 
I wonder, and and uh, edit. We can edit it out if it's sure. if it's too personal. But I was wondering, since so much of this um, world is part of what I've always loved about it is is my dad was a big Calvin and Hobbes fan mm-hmm. more more so than me. And Calvin and Hobbes is a lot about a relationship between a boy and his parents. But as we saw in the first week, really only his dad makes an appearance. Yeah. And I was wondering, as someone who lost uh, your dad at, at kind of a younger age than most of us are used to, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're also used to losing our dads. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, it happened to you at a, at a younger age. Is there a part of this to you that's... Do you connect to it? Be, is, is, is there an element of that at all? Or am I just completely, like, doing some kind of Freudian bullshit. Sure. Um, I don't think so. So my, uh, let's see. Well, so my, the Calvin and Hobbes ended in 95. My dad died on Thanksgiving of 96. So within a year, I mean, definitely those things like, uh, I told, uh, uh, storytellers, I told a story about this recently where, uh, you get these big events in your life and you yeah. don't, ne- they aren't necessarily, that important but you you hook meaning onto them right uh just because they're there's something big that you get and so you see things before like maybe you don't even realize until much later why it's important to you yeah that kind of thing. Or, or uh at some later point in your life you're trying to put meaning onto something and you and and that's a thing that sticks out so you you hook something onto it and and it helps you understand yourself for that time right so i think that um what i just realized having reread these uh it was sort of a uh, a break with that because uh there's 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 some stuff i remember when i was very young and uh but that's uh, almost disconnected you're disconnected from i think you're when you're very young um because so much of that you get through your parents too or for for other people telling you stories and so these things happen pretty close together, but like I was saying, there's this big, uh, there's this big nexus uh, 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 around my dad's death, and so it was amazing to me to like be reading this and uh, kind of realize something beyond that, see something formative, just because so much had been hooked that before that, uh, hooked to my dad's death before that. That was just kind of my go-to. And so to all of a sudden read these comics and kind of slam through that and see that there was something else. Uh, I knew there was other things that uh, were formative for me, but to to be able to pinpoint it like that. So it was almost, it was almost being able to separate this as an event on its own, mm-hmm. not a part of just a, a very important time in your life in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that it was its own thing uh, that di- that wasn't, uh, so it wasn't necessarily related to to the, this other event, uh, my dad dying, except that they both happened to me. Right. And so that I'm uh, now, but now I have like uh, a new lens to understand uh, who I am as a person uh, right. from this. Yeah, that's very interesting. So Bill Waterston is is pretty clear um, that he doesn't want any animated version of these characters. Oh yes, so um, he's, he's he he had actually thought about it for a while, yeah. which is interesting because he's he's so flat out no on so many other things. But it's clear that at, at 
some point in his history, he did think about because he loves animation just yeah. like he loves comics. He just thinks it's an interesting and medium. He's turned down um, Lucas twice. George Lucas people called him twice to about a movie, and he turned them down both times. He also turned down Spielberg, and there was somebody else I can't remember who who it was. Tarantino. But, yeah, it's Tarantino. <laughs> and I was mentioning whatever whatever website it is that I'm not able to remember that had uh-huh. a somewhat recent interview with him. They point out Pixar. They said, you know, sure. with with the track record of Pixar and how yeah. great they mm-hmm. are, and he essentially said, look, they're they're fantastic, but you've almost never seen an adaptation that doesn't get completely butchered in the process. Yeah. And what what I think stuck with me the most about what he said is, there's no upside for me. Was his quote. And and that's so perfect because the upside for so many people would be massive financial yeah. gain. I would. I but would. He said he's so comfortable living with what he probably already has massive financial gain. Well, I would think that one thing that for him to consider is just the idea that it capture a whole new audience. I mean, even mm-hmm. myself, I'm the same age as you guys, and I yeah. really had no up until this point. I hadn't been. Uh, uh, Aware. Ex- exposed yeah. to Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, I knew it existed. I knew it was out there. But hey. if there was some, uh, although there is that that Peanuts movie that just looks like shit. <laughs> Honestly, it? I mean, that's I don't want to get too distracted. But that uh, th- we like the Peanuts movie. Is that oh, Garfield? We, we took Desmond right? and we thought it, it was, was good. Yeah, and and f- what part of what was very good about it was how it stuck to the tenets of Peanuts sure. um, in a lot of now fantastic I, ways. Now I feel like I would watch that. It was, yeah. for someone who has been exposed to a lot of children's pop entertainment in yeah. the past couple of years, I'll, uh, uh, it's it's so quiet yeah. and mm-hmm. slow-paced All that t- you're almost like, I can't believe that some studio exec didn't get in there and, and fucking add, like, mm. you know, a, a pop song to this, like, moment. Giant it's, it's mechanical so, spider. It's so pleasant. <laughs> It's so pleasantly deliberate, the Peanuts I'm movie. Firework, um, come on, but but part no. of why that's probably the case is that it was uh, Charles Schultz's son and grandson who sure. had a big hand in adapting it, and you know so it stayed within that family. And if Bill Waterston doesn't feel like doing it, if he felt like doing it himself, I'm sure it could be great. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't feel like doing it himself, I don't trust anyone to stay true to that vision. I think one of the things that's difficult for him from reading interviews with him is that up until this point, he is the only person who's ever drawn Kevin and Hobbes. So he gets to, there's some editorial, you know, comments, but otherwise he gets to just do that. And I imagine as his success grew, the editorial comments probably came in less frequently. Yeah, definitely. And as he figured out uh, himself. And so the thing he said about, um, about it was that uh, he just didn't, he couldn't there's no way he could draw it that way and every time you add somebody new that's somebody else that you have to talk to and it's just going to get turned away from this thing that you created kind of like all totally by yourself which is uh which is interesting that i i heard that same opinion from burke breathe who did bloom county and opus which is the other like major comic that ended in 95 so uh, uh bloom county Kevin and Hobbs and the Far Side all called it quits in the same oh, year. Oh, I didn't realize that Far Side was also. 95. Yeah, it was all in '95. But Burke Breed had spent a bunch of years in, um, in Hollywood trying to adapt a movie, and eventually he just walked away because he couldn't have uh, control enough control. Final say, it. yeah. Yeah, and and that was a guy who was 
the complete opposite of Watterson would just um, he he licensed a whole bunch of stuff and was happy to do that and saw it as a gift to his fans sure. yeah, and himself. But um, <laughs> and how old is Watterson? Mm, uh, I don't know. So because I thought I read that he was born in the 60s. Yeah, oh, so he would have been He's not terribly old. He's 58. 58. Wow. So that I mean oh, so he's born in 58. Thank you. It kind of it makes you wonder about sort of this uh this renaissance of all this muppet shit that's yeah. going on. Like yeah. I mean, would Jim Henson greenlight all of this sure. or would he say I want to stick to my legacy and what I've already mm-hmm. done? But now that he's passed, he they they don't have to worry about him greenlighting yeah. anything. I mean, obviously Watterson sounds like is relatively young and mm-hmm. healthy, somewhat of a recluse, which yeah. maybe means he'll live even longer because yeah. he, he's yeah. not putting up with all the stressful bullshit of everyday life. I, I just uh, like I said, too. I like that he phrased it in what's there's no upside. Right. You know, he would make more money. He doesn't need more money. I wonder about you gaining more ac- fans. But but at the same time, uh, you know, he has what. I think what his view is is he has ten years of comics to stand on, and he hopes. I, I don't want to speak for him because yeah, the last sure. thing I want to do is speak for someone who almost never even speaks for himself. But mm-hmm. you could see how maybe he would hope that fans find those books, you know, through their parents or through someone passing it down, and they stay true to the one voice who gave those characters life. And and if they got exposed to it through something that he did not have sole proprietorship of, mm-hmm. it wouldn't really be exposed to it. It would right. be exposed to something else. It sounds like yeah. he just doesn't want to put out something that's just a watered-down version of whatever mm-hmm. he's already created, which he stands by and knows that it's great as a standalone. Yeah. He doesn't, it doesn't he's need okay. anything more. He's okay just having been a comic artist and having it be a cartoon. And if, has, he, if he, he hadn't stuck the landing so yeah. well with that last strip mm-hmm. maybe he would want to go revisit it but I'm they ended even... on a perfect note it's it's widely regarded as as the perfect ending for the strip why why put that in jeopardy so it's been 20 years now has he put out any other strips that aren't Kelvin and Hobbes related he's he, he's he said he's not that interested he did do the thing a few years ago with pearls before swine where he did like guest strips for like three days or right. something. Right. Okay. And Where he uh, was a guest artist. Yeah. And, a and he let guest his he, and he let his name be on that after the fact. Oh sure. Like, okay. The, he, the, after it was successful. Creator, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then he's the like, creator yeah. had to keep it hush hush. I think he was just hoping for um, uh, an honest reaction. Is sort of I think of um, yes, like Steve Martin when he said oh, he sure. stopped doing stand up. Because he didn't know if the jokes were good or if people were laughing because of his name, and or um, Dave Chappelle, who wasn't sure. sure if he was still critiquing racism or if racist people were just laughing at the yeah. jokes. He couldn't tell anymore. Yeah. Mm. And it's it's interesting. Do you know much about Pearls Before Swine? Because other than hearing that he worked on it, I couldn't tell you anything about that comic. It's trip. a it's an animal comic mostly, um, and uh, I've seen. So just in, I watched the Dear Mr. Watterson, and so he was on it, the Stephen Pastis or Pestis. Uh, and he, show, he showed a little bit of his creative process of making it. The big one that I've discovered because of going back to Bill Watterson is Cul-de-Sac, which is Richard Thompson. And uh, so there's this big... He, he wrote a book or he participated in a book Yeah, so there's a big interview... 
that big interview book that um, Watterson did, there was one the year before, and he did a section of it. So they, um, but he conducted the interview. He conducted the interview. So the interview is him and Richard Thompson, two incredible comic artists, uh, just talking about being nerdy about being comic artists and where they got their influences and what kind of a little bit about what kind of materials they used and, and went from there. And it was, it was nice. It was, it was incredible to read it. Um, because I kept hearing that cul-de-sac was this incredible, cartoon uh, or comic and that the Richard Thompson was this incredible artist but then to see the breadth of this guy's work he's done caricature work he's he did comics for the New Yorker uh, he's done all kinds of art and then he at the end of that he turned that into this uh, really good little comic strip uh, about uh, a suburban family and uh, the the weird kids and like they're talking hamster and uh, it, it's a it's a really fun comic sure. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Uh, again, I want to stress to everyone that you can check out Madison Storytellers on iTunes. You can find them on Facebook. Uh, it's it's just really a fantastic. Uh, you know, the, it's about monthly. If I want to yeah. say about when yeah, the podcast we, and stuff comes out, and when you do the shows live. Yep, we do a monthly. We take a a little break uh, in December, and we take a little break in the summer because uh, I'm from Madison. That's a college town, and everybody leaves. So nobody comes. specifically, I'm talking to you, uh, David and Maggie, two cousins of mine that live in Madison, because I don't know if anyone else that listens to the show is in Madison. <laughs> so David and Maggie, if you're listening, uh, you better get down to a Madison Storytellers event. Yeah, I'll be watching for you. I'm going to tell <laughs> Tim if you show up or not. David Sounds and awesome. We're a very welcoming audience. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Remember that you can check us out at Facebook.com uh, slash The Bookends Podcast, and you can email the show at thebookendspodcast at gmail.com. Durnberger. Have you ever gotten an email? Uh, one time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to say goodbye from the Bookends Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Bye. 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 Can I add in on that? Bye.